Hey y'all, this is Jeff Ryder of Gravity Matters from Cloud Wrangler Comics, and you are listening to Adrian Has Issues, because you are smart. everybody welcome to adrian has issues i'm adrian and today's guest is a writer editor and self-proclaimed troublemaker which is as good a bio as any if i can actually say so myself and he's also the uh... <laughs> that is always like the best where it's like i always love bios where it just starts off i'm like okay i'm an artist cool it's like i'm a musician and then it's like the third thing is always like that wrench in the gears where it's like, oh, wait a minute, this is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he is a co-creator of a fantastic comic. You've probably heard about it. If you're on social media, I'm, I'm sure you have. It's called Spencer and Locke through Action Lab, and it is a great book. And um, actually, just real quick, your book also features artwork by Jorge Santiago, colors by Jason Smith, lettering by Colin Bell. And um, actually, there's also a B cover by uh, Monhouse, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yep. But please welcome to the show, David Propose. David, how are you? I'm doing great, Adrian. Thanks so much for having me. Um, thank you for jumping on. We had kind of chatted indirectly through emails, and I remember you had uh, sent out a press release for Spencer Locke, and I was just like, wow, this looks like a really cool premise. Thank you. And at the time, I'm just thinking of, okay, here's a detective and an anthropomorphic panther. And I'm saying to myself, you know what? That sounds like a good, fun premise. But then it wasn't until I read the book where I literally went, holy shit, this is a lot different than what I thought it was going to be. But I think that made it all that much better. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a, uh, we feel like the little indie that could right now. Uh, you know, I, I feel like people say, write what you know. And uh, when we started out on this, what I knew was comics. And so I felt that uh, after sort of a, a little bit of trial and error, we felt that uh, it's like uh, rum and coke or peanut butter and bacon or a Hawaiian pizza of comics. It's two great tastes that you wouldn't think would go great together. But let me tell you, as as writer of this book, uh, I love it. It goes great. We should probably mention the fact that this is your first published comic. So congratulations. What's that been like? Uh, surreal, for sure. I, I'm very much kind of pinching myself every day that not only did I get the opportunity to do this and to work with uh, Jorge and, and Jason and Colin and Mon and Ben and Joe on this, but also just the fact that people seem to have really responded to it. Something that I was particularly heartened with some news uh, from today, actually, is, uh, you know, I check out Comic Review Roundup pretty religiously uh, just to sort of see what people are saying about our book and to help publicize and promote our book. And I just found out today that Spencer and Locke actually is uh, in the top 20 of all comics in the industry that have been reviewed favorably. So that is uh, very cool news. We're number eight in the indie charts overall. So that's kind of a little surreal and in a, in a long line of things that are surreal. It's so heartening to see that people could see our book, which, of course, on paper in premise is very risky. We bill it as what if Calvin and Hodge grew up in Sin City? So to have uh, readers really kind of embrace us and rally around us and to have the press and retailers do uh, follow suit, uh, we couldn't be more grateful. It's, it's, uh, it's such a, an, an incredible opportunity. We're so grateful that people have responded to it. 
I'd imagine it's also kind of daunting because, you know, as you just said, it's a mixture of Calvin and Hobbes and Sin City. Mm -hmm. And considering that the creators of both of those uh, comics, you know, you couldn't really find two completely different books. But at the same time, you've managed to find like this weird marriage. And something that I've come to notice as I got older is that they're actually not too different in a lot of ways. Absolutely. I mean, I kind of feel like growing up, I, I, there's a 10-year age gap between me and my younger siblings. So I know what it was like to be an only child. And my mother was a huge fan of Calvin and Hobbes when I was growing up. She always cut out the clippings for her office. And I think there was part of me that always felt there was something a little sinister about it. Um, I know what it was like to be an only child, and I didn't have to hallucinate a best friend. So I always kind of thought, like, what's this guy's deal? And it wasn't until uh, much later uh, I read a remixed Calvin and Hobbes strip where uh, Calvin was put on Ritalin. <laughs> and Hobbes is saying, hey, do you want to go out? You want to? You know, it's a beautiful day out. We go out and play. And Calvin goes, no, nah, I really got to finish this homework. Mom says that uh, she's put me in a new dosage and she says it's really improving my focus. And then it just cuts to like Calvin doing his homework and there's this lifeless doll sitting next to him. And I, I, I laughed because it was so bleak. And then I, the gear started turning and I said, oh, you know, that that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, what if sort of this this imaginary friend wasn't just this kind of quirky affectation? What if it was instead sort of a, a, a more sinister symptom of a deeper pathology? Right. And that, I think, really kind of dovetailed nicely with this sort of classic Frank Miller aesthetic. When I was a kid, uh, Daredevil, The Man Without Fear was really kind of a, a life-changing book for me. Because it made me realize that comics were created by writers and artists. They weren't just sort of generated spontaneously or created by committee. There are real authors involved. And so, um, you know, for, for especially for my first book, that was something that I really wanted to, to, to give a nod to. And, you know, I think that's the thing that Frank Miller and Bill Watterson have in common. They, they have this real subversive streak to them. You know, because you see people talk about Calvin and Hobbes being a, a symbol of innocence, but... Calvin himself is pretty misanthropic. And, he really you know, is. <laughs> very, very mischievous and would, you know, he was the one who would be pounding nails into the coffee table and, and making, you know, graphic death scenes with his snowmen. And that was in your daily newspaper. And, you know, Frank Miller, I mean, I mean, anybody can, can tell you that he's obviously, uh, you know, both as, as subversive as he is iconoclastic. And, you know, I, I think you can say the man's forgotten more how to make comics than I'll ever know. So I, I feel like, you know, putting these two voices together, I think that's why they work so well together, I think. And the difference is it's not just like this wacky idea of what if we mix these two elements, but you did it in a way where it feels natural and you couldn't have done it without having a deep appreciation and love for both of those. Thank you. Well, that was our, that was our goal. You know, I've, I've always thought of this as our love letter to, you know, two pioneering creators in the industry. And, uh, you know, the thing that I think really makes Spencer and Locke its own animal is uh, it's our themes. Uh, I, I've said that Spencer and Locke is very much a book about returning to the scene of the crime. And it's not just about Detective Locke investigating who murdered his childhood sweetheart, Sophie Jenkins. It's also Locke and his imaginary panther friend, Spencer, having to sort of look back at the traumas that shape their lives. And everyone has scars. The question is, are we defined by them? Can we overcome them or are we always destined to succumb to them? Right. And I feel like for me, that's why even though this series certainly has a, a, a bleakness to it, it, at its core, 
this real redemptive arc, this real sort of notion of hope that things can be better. And so I feel like that's why in, in many ways I feel like Locke is sort of the, the most inspiring character I've ever written because you see all these things that's happened to him over the course of his life and he still comes back from it. And, you know, when I see that, I think, well, if Locke can come back from this, why can't I? I especially loved, and I'm going to try my best not to necessarily spoil it because I, uh, first and foremost, I want to make sure everybody checks out this book too, but I also really liked the arc of Spencer, which is kind of weird to say because you may think of him only as an extension of... Of Locke's subconscious, yeah. Exactly. But in a way, Spencer's still almost fighting for, you know, his own legitimacy and his own sort of tangibility, really. And it's really kind of cool because there are many times in his book where you forget. Right. And, you know, or you're thinking to yourself, okay, and maybe this just speaks to my imagination. And I'm sure a lot of us, when we grew up, had imaginary friends, or maybe we personified maybe stuffed animals we had or other things to the point where to us, it was as living and breathing as anything else. Right. It's very, like I said, it's sad, but at the same time, it's like this great emotional core to the story where, you know, he's as real as the characters in within the book and also the readers, you know, as real as they want him to be. And I think that's something that's really fantastic about it. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, uh, certain lines kind of pop into my head. It popped into my head as I was, as I was writing it. And, uh, you touched upon one of my favorite lines in the whole book, which is, uh, Spencer telling people, I'll always be as real as you need me to be. And I feel like for me, the core challenge for any sort of script is how do you make the readers fall in love with the character? How do you invent a character? that not only you as the writer would be willing to to follow for the long haul, but that you can get other people to follow suit. And I feel like, sure, Locke is kind of a jerk and kind of rough around the edges, and you might even <laughs> say he's, he's a little bit of a sociopath, but it's hard to not root for somebody when you know their whole story. And so between seeing Locke uh, you know, through all the pitfalls of his childhood, but also the loyalty and love that Spencer has for him, and I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, you always get surprised, uh, as, as a writer about certain things about the way that your book is received and your work is received. For me, the big surprise was just how many people fell in love with Spencer. Um, Jorge and I, we, we, we talk pretty regularly. And I can't tell you how many times he's said, Oh, I, I went to a signing or I, I filled out a sketch cover. They wanted Spencer. Somebody wanted Spencer. They wanted young Spencer. They wanted adult Spencer. They wanted all kinds of, uh, you know, people were telling him that Spencer looked sexy. I, 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 <laughs> now, that's I, an interesting one. I, I'd yeah. be interested to see some of those pieces. <laughs> and uh, I feel like, you know, if, if Jorge has to spend the rest of his career drawing sexy anthropomorphic panthers, I'm sorry, buddy. I didn't mean for this to happen to you. <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, I certainly have been surprised at just sort of how much people have enjoyed Spencer as, as well as Locke. And, uh, yeah, I just, I think it all comes down to, you know, I think there's a real fun chemistry and banter between these two characters. You know, it's very similar to, you know, a lot of the classic buddy cop dynamics. Right. Yeah. You see these two kind of busting each other's chops on one page, but the moment that, you know, stuff, hits the fan, they got each other's backs. And I, I think that sort of dynamic of unconditional love and friendship is, is sort of a, a, the silver lining to what could have otherwise been a very kind of bleak and depressing story. Right. So speaking of chemistry, 
Let's get into the team you've assembled here. The artwork and the colors of his book and, you know, the lettering. Everything's, you know, it's very well done. It's very striking. So if you don't mind getting into a little bit of how did you sort of assemble the team, so to speak, and getting this book made? I'm working with a fantastic team. There's no other way to say it. I am so lucky to have a team this talented and this good working with me on this book. The way that I put the team together, uh, actually the first person to join was Colin Bell, uh, our letterer. I've known Colin for many years. He uh, used to be a freelancer of mine over at Newsarama. And uh, before he went on to become a fancy schmancy letterer, when I had written the script and I said, maybe I'll actually try to put this together, Colin was the first person I called. I said, I'm going to need a letterer. Can you help me out? The next person was, you know, clearly the, the, the most important piece of the puzzle, Jorge Santiago Jr., uh, our, our artist on the book and my co-creator and partner on this book. Jorge, I mean, I can't say enough great things about him. He is so dynamic. He's so fluid. He's so expressive with his art. And he never backed down from a challenge, not once. And I threw everything in the kitchen sink at him because at the time I was afraid that they were going to throw me in comic book jail for doing Gritty Calvin and Hobbes. So I said, <laughs> if I, this is my only book. I want to make sure I throw everything I can at it. The thing that got me about Jorge was um, when I decided I was going to try to put together an art team, I took a page out of Justin Jordan's playbook. And Justin, uh, you know, his breakout work was The Strange Talent of Luther Strode. And I think the smartest thing that he did with that book was he found an artist like Trad Moore. And I, I have met Trad a few times, and uh, I'm so impressed with his, his style. And I had heard that he had graduated from the Savannah College of Art and Design. So I wound up looking through a lot of those sort of art comic schools, SCAD, RISD, the Kubert School, um, SVA, to name a few. And Jorge's portfolio really stuck out at me because he said that he made comics and art with, quote, stupid amounts of passion. <laughs> and I love that little it's those little X factors that that can really make a partnership. Right. Because I feel like that's that passion is what you need in order to succeed for these kinds of books. I mean, comics can be an uphill battle. Uh, they can be very challenging. And it's that passion that'll get you to the finish line. And I feel like that's the thing that Jorge and I, we really clicked on that. And it was so great working with him because he and I come, we, we have such very different knowledge bases that we're, that we approach this project with. Right. I got my start as a DC Comics intern and then worked my way up at Newsarama to become the reviews editor. So I feel like I had a very analytical way of breaking down comics from sort of every angle. Jorge, meanwhile, he's been in the trenches. He's been self-publishing for quite some time. And so it's sort of being able to take that sort of analytical side that we both had and also trying to sort of filter it in with what's doable, what, uh, you know, what are some of the real world things that could hold us back for this or that uh, we need to take into consideration to make this page or this sequence or this cover work. And, uh, you know, we interrogated every single page of this book. I mean, from the layouts to the thumbnails, all the way to the finished inks and colors and letters. And I think that's part of the reason why Spencer and Locke looks the way it does, is we would send pages and pages of emails back and forth trying to just nail the right way to get a sequence out. Because I, I'm of the opinion, and I feel Jorge is the same way, there's never a second chance at making a good first impression. Right. 
And we wanted to make sure that nobody knew our name, nobody had heard of our book, that we wanted to make sure that we really kind of went for a grand slam. Uh, Jason was actually the final component of our team. And Jason, uh, he was the longest one to find. Uh, we had worked with two other colorists before we found Jason. And the first one was super nice. Their uh, style didn't really fit with Jorge's. Right. So we found a second colorist who took the money and ran, which I was quite annoyed with. And I was feeling pretty dejected at that point. It had been several months. Jorge had already turned in his art. Colin had already done lettering mock-ups. They were really just waiting for me to find the right colorist. And so I remember I eventually, I just put a message up on Facebook and I said, hey, I'm looking for a colorist and, you know, if you know anybody. And so Taylor Esposito, um, the letterer from Ghost Cliff Studios, he actually, he and I have been friendly for a while and he, he messaged me and he said, hey, my friend Jason Smith over at Hi-Fi, he's always looking for work. And so uh, I met Jason and Jason's really been our secret weapon for this whole thing. He takes Jorge's just astonishing artwork and just brings it to the next level. He really cranks up the energy. And I knew the moment that we saw our pitch pages, which was actually pages one through six of issue one, we didn't change anything from what we sent to Action Lab to what you guys are reading right now. I saw Jason's colors and I said, yep, this is the guy. Well, shout out to uh, Taylor, by the way. Really good guy. He's a great guy. Great guy. Love him to death. You know what? I should give a shout out also to our uh, variant cover artists. Uh, I've known Joe Mulvey uh, for a long time, just based on Twitter. And uh, when I finally got a book, I said, oh, well, I have to get Joe to do a variant. There's just no no question. Mon was interesting. Um, I had never met Mon. I've never spoken with Mon. Uh, he's actually down in uh, Uruguay, I believe. Oh, no way. And he's done some work over at Top Cow. And uh, some friends of mine, some mutual friends, uh, I saw them like his work on Facebook. And I immediately just was really taken with how kind of gritty and real it looked. So I just messaged him out of the blue and I said, hey, I, you know, I might need a variant cover. And when we found out that Action Lab was actually going to give us variants for all four issues, uh, poor Mon had to double time the rest of those covers. But I was just like, no, man, like you are one of the faces of this book now just because so many people – uh, really vibed on that first cover he did. Right. We also worked some with Ben Torres, the artist on Kingpin, who uh, I believe we are going to have an image from him for our Baltimore Comic-Con exclusive variant. And he just knocked out this gnarly Frank Miller-inspired picture of Spencer and Locke. Uh, people can find it on our Instagram or Twitter feeds uh, if you dig in a little bit deeper. But it is just like the gnarliest thing I've ever seen. I love it to death. Having a team like these guys, it's like magic. I, I feel like I feel like when you have a team that good, it really forces you to bring your A game to every page because you don't want to be the guy who embarrasses these superstars. Like you don't want to be the weak link. So <laughs> it it really lit a fire under me and kind of uh, made me take this thing as seriously as I could. It has a really interesting flow. Of course, I equate everything to music. I was actually going to say it's, it's almost very sort of prog rock and its approach. Thank you. The story beats, you know, almost like the same with music, like very odd time <laughs> signatures and different beats where, you know, it starts going down a path and just when you think it's getting too linear, it sort of switches up, you know, especially as you plotted out the flashbacks. 
Because I know in certain comics, and this is not a slight in any way, because I know everybody has a different style. But I know for some narratives, you know, the story will continue, and then maybe a particular issue or arc will do it like a flashback or a do like a flashback, or like that. Exactly, exactly. And I know that since the story itself is a little bit more self-contained and it's a mini, you know, you may not necessarily have that much time to establish a backstory, right? So having looked back into Locke's childhood and how it pertains to the current predicament, I thought it was a very clever way. And especially, you know, going back to the art and how it was framed, because it definitely brought back that sort of, like I said, like that Calvin Hobbes kind of style, but flipped on its ear. So right. you're looking at this classic, you know, it's like, oh, I recognize this look. But then when you start reading the story, what happens to this guy? You're like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, you know, you, you hit the nail right on the head because I feel like our very first page was kind of meant to be a mission statement of, of what to expect for this book, because. Uh, like you said, we sort of we lull the readers into kind of this sense of, of familiarity and complacency because you see this kind of cartoony, innocent flashback, and then you see Locke's mom just beat the crap out of him. And it's sort of it was our way to kind of pull the the rug out from under our readers to say, you know, this isn't the kind of innocent, wholesome entertainment that you might be expecting. This is sort of the dark side of Bill Watterson's dream. And it's it's interesting that you mentioned music because I, I feel very much the same way about comics writing. I feel that there's a rhythm that goes into it. And I feel uh, Rick Remender, I think, is really good at that. Um, if you read some of his work like Fear Agent or his Punisher run, uh, the way that he paces out an action scene, it was really influential on me. And for me, it is it's kind of like. It's kind of like playing bass, you know, you you sort of have that rhythm that you've got going and right. then you have to figure out, okay, how do I change this up so that it doesn't get stale? And that's where I think the flashbacks and, and really just sort of dichotomy of our, of our inspirations really was helpful to me because I feel like any time that the book was starting to get too bleak, we could inject in a flashback or at least a one liner, something to sort of bring the humor back. You know, if, if things were getting a little too easy we could, you know, hit a hard swerve and, you know, sort of show that, you know, remind people that this is kind of a bleak world and it's a world where that, you know, decay is kind of everywhere. It's infected everything and nobody is safe. So, uh, you know, it really just it, it did feel a lot like music to me in terms of just how we pl- paced it out and how we could sort of play around with different panel layouts and and page turns and and things like that to just keep readers on their toes. Book is very much a discussion or I guess a a look into several forms of mental illness. And, you know, that's right. And that's also very tough in and of itself, too. And as we've seen in many examples, and not even just comics and TV and other forms of media, where if you're not careful, you know, you don't want to necessarily steep too much into where it's maybe downplaying it or belittling it and at the same time you don't want to necessarily glorify it either right exactly and that was something that jorge and i talked about so much in the making of this book because like you said you know we knew that this was kind of a tightrope that you know this is a book about child abuse and about mental illness and trauma and we never wanted to play that up for last right uh this is you know this was something that you know was was very serious and sure there's a sense of humor to the book but it was never based on sort of these these pivotal, you know, uh, and horrible moments in Locke's life. And I know we we definitely deliberated a lot of scenes, particularly in our second issue, 
because you know we we didn't want to glorify child abuse. We didn't want to make it sexy or titillating or comedic or romanticized in any way. And I have to say that's been some of the most heartening responses that we've gotten is we've had people come up to us and say, I grew up in, a, in a, an abusive household or I've worked with people with mental illness and we really appreciate sort of the sensitivity that you guys brought to it. And I know there are a lot of people who saw our premise and said, "Ugh, like gritty Calvin and Hobbes, like no thanks, probably because they thought that it was going to be gratuitous and exploitive. And uh, that's sort of the thing that I've been trying to, to sort of shout from the rooftops is that's not what we are aiming for. I feel like if I just wanted to do a book based on shock value, I could have done post-apocalyptic Sesame Street or something like that. <laughs> Which, you know what, though? And, you say it as a joke, but I would still read the hell out of that. <laughs> uh, yeah. I feel like, you know, there's only so much that you can do with shock value. Right. You know? And I feel like, yeah, you can hook somebody once with that. But after after that, you start getting diminishing returns. But I think for, for this particular story with this particular angle, there's something a little inspiring as well as harrowing. And, and I feel like you see Locke in these flashbacks and, you know, you, you can't help but want to give the kid a hug. And that's why in a lot of ways, issue four is one of my favorite issues because uh, we kind of get a little bit of that resolution and we finally get to lay up, uh, lay off of some of the like more, you know, bleak and depressing moments because you know, we get to finally see Spencer step up. So I, I feel like, I mean, it was certainly a challenge. And, you know, I, I don't think there's any way we could win over every single person. But I, I feel really glad that we were able to win over really the vast majority of our critics, especially people who did not think we could possibly stick the landing. And uh, people saying, hey, you guys threaded that needle and you made it work. So, uh, you know, nobody's more grateful and thankful uh, really to my team for for pulling that off than I am. Going back to the music analogies, I, I will say, though, issue number three, probably one of my favorite issues. Thank you. You know, the Rocketman Reynolds stuff. You know, it's like basically a band kind of jamming out a little bit and then essentially just going into like this onstage freak out where everything's still, <laughs> you know, everything's still jamming. But normally bands will perform for the audience at this point that everybody must have just looked at each other and was like, you know what? We're just going to do this thing. If they like it, cool. There'll be a pit. If they walk out, we're sorry. But we just had to do this thing and we just had to let it rock because it's such a very surreal issue. The colors and the, the artwork really pop on that one. Like I said before, I, I thought I wanted Spencer and Locke to be uh, a portfolio for all of us involved because, you know, I, I'd been sort of circling the outskirts of the industry for a long time before I decided, hey, maybe I'll try writing and take a crack at this. And, you know, you only get one chance to make a good first impression. And I wanted to make sure that from every aspect that this was going to be a book that people would say, oh, man, I love the artist on this book. Oh, man, I love the colors on this book. And so I wanted to sort of uh, change things up as much as I could. And not only that, but, um, you know, going back to our initial inspiration, uh, you know, people, you, you can't talk about Calvin and Hobbes without mentioning Spaceman Spiff. Uh, Spaceman was within the first week or two of Bill Watterson's comic strips in the comics and the newspapers. So he's been, you know, part of the Calvin and Hobbes mythos almost as long as Calvin and Hobbes. Not only that, but because this book is about mental illness and perception, uh, I always thought, you know, what would what could be a better, more tense way to go about this than to just push Locke off the deep end and say, okay, 
for this whole series, he's just been hallucinating a best friend. What happens when his whole world turns inside out? And so, yeah, this was it was one of my favorite issues to to write. Also, because I think we were able to zero in a little bit more on the depression angle. Um, there's a line in that issue that uh, really stuck with me for a long time, which is Locke. Uh, he's he's been fighting a character that I wrote in the script. His name is the Dark Ranger, which is sort of a you know a Darth Vader kind of you know uh, riff. But it turns out it's just like a hapless henchman that just Locke is beating to death because he's on drugs. And there's a line where he sa- he shouts, why are you doing this to me? And Locke sees the image of his dead mother. And she says, because you deserve it. And I feel like that's a line that anybody who's ever been depressed, I think, has heard that line before. Right. I think everybody feels that you know, they feel bad or they feel unwanted or they feel unloved or they feel like a burden and that they feel like any bad thing that happens to them, they feel like they deserve it. So for me, that issue was like really important because I wanted, you know, I've had mom- I've had times in my life where I've been depressed or I felt hopeless or I've, I've had no direction. And I wanted anybody who's felt that way to know that it's not their fault. That's why, in a lot of ways, issue three was one of my favorites, and also because it really bookended thematically and emotionally with our fourth issue. Right. Uh, it was sort of once we had fully established these characters and sort of shown how bad things could get for them, we were able to kind of pull them out a little bit and sort of show that they could overcome some, you know, some of the most horrific things that could happen to a kid. Uh, and I say this to be, you know, complimentary, but it's definitely a challenging read because of these things and, you know, especially drawing parallels. And like I do with most stories that I read, you know, obviously you had to sort of personalize it at least just a little bit, not too much, because then that can go the other way sometimes as we've seen. But, you know, and then you start realizing it's like, wow, it's not that it necessarily made it like brand new to me, but it was just an interesting way to frame it. I almost kind of hated reading it. That's weird to say because I'm like, because no. sometimes I'd really just read a panel or a page and just go, damn. Like, that's, yeah. <laughs> this was definitely yeah, not just Detective Noir for the sake of, you know, badges and bullets. I mean, one of my favorite movies of all time is Memento. That movie is deep in the DNA of Spencer and Locke because it's all about a guy who has a disability and how he winds up making that disability work as a system for him. And that was really the the main inspiration behind Spencer and Locke is, yeah, Locke is a deeply damaged and scarred individual, but he's come up with his own unique coping mechanism. This series was really the mystery behind that mechanism. Why does he need it? And uh, yeah, there's absolutely some moments that were very tough for me to write, for sure. And while I can't say, you know, I can't say I was abused as a child, I mean, I've certainly, I've certainly been in relationships that have been abusive. And I feel like um, I've seen dynamics that have been particularly abusive. And I was able to sort of tap into feelings that I've had of sort of depression or inadequacy or, you know, heartbreak or sadness or pain. And just sort of, you know, trying to show some empathy. I guess is the best word I, I would use. It's trying to 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 not put down Spencer and Locke for sort of their rough around the edgesness, or you know, to sort of you know try to make jokes at their expense. 
But, you know, just to sort of say, oh, like everybody's got their own demons and that's okay. To bring it a little bit more current, I'm actually having a lot of dialogue because I believe it was what? Was it earlier this week or last week um, when, uh, what's the gentleman from uh, the band Lincoln Park? It's unfortunate that a lot of people kind of consider something of a punchline of new metal era, things like that. And a lot of people were making these very distasteful jokes. And not only just about the band, but also suicide in and of itself and also maybe his personal demons. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, a man just died. And he is one of many people. And we only know about those who are famous. You know, these are things that we can't just necessarily blow off just because you may not be a fan of the music or you thought it was another way. It's like, we, you know, you mentioned empathy, and I think that's probably one of the most important things when it comes to mental health issues is even if you can't necessarily help directly, at least have empathy because someone is still suffering or someone is experiencing a loss. And, you know, I, I just... It was very hard because I'm like, even if it were time removed, I still don't think it would necessarily be appropriate because, like I said, these are serious issues and that could be any one of us or have been. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I I feel like it it could be any one of us. And I feel like everyone can relate to having things in their past that have hurt them that they don't want to remember. And I mean, I, you know, it's funny because I I feel like our fourth issue came out that, that same day that the news broke. Of, of the Lincoln Park uh, front man committing suicide. And boy, that just, you know, it kind of, that kind of broke me a little bit. I mean, our fourth issue deals with that uh, very topic in, in a lot of detail. I mean, of course, like, I think there are a lot of people out there who see that as their escape, um, that they're in so much pain or that they feel like they'd be a burden on their friends or family. And so that they just don't want to go through it anymore. And, that's the thing. Uh, you know, we have a line that Spencer says where he says, you know, uh, whether you're, uh, you know, a bird or a fish or a panther like me, I wouldn't want to live in a world without my best friend just as you are. And yeah, I feel like, you know, that's the sort of thing I, I feel like if anybody's listening out there, they feel they feel like this. I mean, we, we want you around. We want you as is, uh, you know, whether or not you feel, you know, uh, unworthy or damaged or or hurt in some way we still want you and um that's uh, you know ultimately i think the 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 end goal for spencer and Locke is you know just to show people they're they're not alone even even Locke is not alone and i i feel like that should give hope to a lot of us Right. And something I had said to a guest a couple episodes ago, it's also, I think, important for people to not only just speak out, but also to listen, you know, because that that is also the other half of it. But considering the themes with this and how self-contained this felt, I could definitely feel that, you know, this could, if it was warranted and if there was an opportunity to sort of carry the story onward, to continue on with Locke's sort of... I don't want to say necessarily redemption, but I guess he's, you know, kind of coming to terms with all these things that have happened in his life. So will we be seeing any other stories or arcs where we kind of continue along with this at all? Well, we are dotting our I's and crossing our T's. We are in talks with Action Lab right now just to get a sense of everybody's availability and to make sure that the numbers bear out. But I very much would like to tell more stories with Spencer and Locke. I feel like there's a much wider universe for them to explore. And I think the thing that I like so much about them as characters is they're very complex. And so I feel like a lot of the sort of what I call refrigerator moments that people have pointed out, things like, 
oh, well, how could Locke, you know, how could Locke be a police officer the way that he acts? Or, you know, he's killed a, a warehouse full of henchmen, you know, you know, and he's just going to get away. Those are things that I would, you know, if if we are able to do uh, more stories, those are things that I immediately plan to address. Um, I, I feel like, and, and not only that, I feel like they're, you know, uh, I feel like the, the sort of the Sunday funnies are, are kind of a very fertile ground to play with. And so I, I have ideas for two to three more arcs and we just have to sort of make a hundred percent that the demand is there and to make sure that we're, we're all available. But I, I definitely would love to tell some more stories with these characters. And I, I think that they, uh, there's a, a much larger arc for Spencer and Locke, both in terms of sort of their reaction to this story and just kind of their overall wrestling with the past. I was pitching it to to Action Lab this weekend at San Diego Comic-Con, and they all seemed very excited. So I, I have my fingers crossed that uh, this isn't the last we see of them. Cool. Well, hope it all works out. But before we go, though, um, I forgot to mention earlier, the other bit of news is that um, Spencer and Locke was also optioned. Yes, yes. Um, we have been working with Adrian Iscaria. He seems very respectful of not just our story, but our tone, which I think is really kind of the unique thing about our book. Uh, you know, I always want to get, you know, you know, I always don't want to, you know, get people's hopes too high that, you know, certain things probably won't make it to the big screen. I feel like a lot of, you know, sort of our more winking nods to, uh, Calvin Hobbes, for example, I don't know if those would translate, you know, but I think what's so cool about film adaptation is that you take those, you know, indispensable parts, the things that work, the things that make your story your story, and then you sort of remix little bits and pieces just to make sure that it actually hits the hardest it possibly can for the widest audience. And so I'm really excited. You know, there, there's not a ton of news we can report yet. Um, there have been a few preliminary names that have been tossed around that have been very exciting uh, to hear. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, you know we're 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 very excited, and this is you know only the first step for uh, you know a long marathon, and, and Hollywood projects can die at any second. But uh, even to sort of start off on this journey is uh, is more exciting than I could have hoped. Cool, and hopefully, once the information uh, becomes more available, we'll be hearing yeah. more about it. So yeah, um, thanks, man. Uh, yeah, thank you for sharing your story. Of course, my pleasure. I mean, and and you know, the thing that I will tell all your listeners is uh, our trade is going to be hitting stores soon. Um, it'll be in comic shops and Comicsology starting August second, and it'll be available via Amazon and Barnes and Noble August fifteenth. If you've been holding out until the trade, uh, now is going to be the time to pick it up. I know you mentioned uh, Instagram and Twitter earlier. If you wouldn't mind running down some social networking sites where people can interact more with the world of Spencer and Locke. Sure. Well, you can, first off, you can follow the book. It's Spencer and Locke. That's just one word with and spelled out and Locke has an E at the end. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. It's all the same username. You can also follow me uh, on Twitter. It's Pepos D. And you can follow Jorge at Jorge Santiago Jr. also on Twitter. I believe he's also on Tumblr and Instagram with that name as well. So, um, yeah, you know, we, we just want to thank everybody who has picked up our book and all the, you know, all the press that have talked about it and all the retailers who have taken a chance on us. I feel like, I feel like we're the little indie that could right now. And it's because 
every single corner of the comics industry really rallied around us. And I, I know, I, I think I speak for the team when I say we're all incredibly grateful for it. And we're, uh, we're hoping to tell some more stories for you very soon. Excellent. So thank you again for uh, stopping by and thank you all for listening. And after the ending theme, you will be hearing all of our information. So that'll do it for this episode of Adrian Has Issues, and we will see you next issue. Thank you for listening to Adrian Has Issues. Please be sure to visit adrianhasissues.com to stream or download our other great episodes. Like us on Facebook at Adrian Has Issues, on Instagram at Adrian Has Issues Pod, and follow us on Twitter at Adrian Has Issues. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the Satchel Podcast app, available on iOS and Android. Adrian Has Issues is a proud member of the Nerdsloth Network, home to such great podcasts as Nerds on Tap, Cinefreak Critique, and Saturday Morning Cartoon Boom. Visit them at nerdsloth.com.